Welcome to Thrive Radio, expert visionary and innovative business, life, and relationship advice to live a life of doing the impossible with your host, Amy Montgomery. Welcome to Thrive Radio. I'm your host, Amy Montgomery, entrepreneur and digital marketing agency owner. Today, my guest is Brad Fern. He is a developmental coach in the healthcare industry, the founder of EPC, certified ITC coach, physician coach, and licensed psychotherapist specializing in trauma. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Yes. So can you share with us some of your story and how you became a coach and why you chose to do what you do? As a young person, I was an entrepreneur. I bought into my first business partnership when I was 21. And then I started several other businesses. You know, they're all small businesses. But the industry I was in just didn't seem to have the depth that I was looking for. So I decided to become a therapist. And so I went off and got my master's degree in Adlerian psychology. Okay. But when I came out of that uh, and went out into the world and, and was actually walking as a therapist, I ended up working in, in an underserved area which was really a great uh, experience because I had just about everything you can imagine thrown at me. I basically specialized in trauma, especially traumatized children. So as a therapist and a former entrepreneur, you can imagine, you know, developmental coaching, I was just drawn toward it, you know, especially, you know, in my case with executives and physicians. But I was especially moved by and drawn toward the work of uh, Harvard professor Robert Keegan, and you'll hear me refer to him from time to time. But so I became uh, certified in his method, which is called immunity to change, ITC, as you said. Um, and it's his method. And one of his colleagues, her name is Lisa Laskow-Lehi. But then I became a, a certified as a physician co uh, coach with the Physician Coaching Institute. And I did some work with the leadership circle people. And so, and then I ended up working as an in-house coach for a consultancy for four years. And now I have my own coaching business called Fern EPC or Fern Executive and Physician Coaching. But the reason I think this is more to the point of your question. The, the reason that I became a professional listener, and I, I think I'm one of those lucky people, you know, I consider myself very lucky because I love what I do. I work with an extremely bright demographic. You know, I work with, you know, as, as you know, physicians, physician leaders, and executives. And these people tend to be very ambitious. You know, they're really highly trained and educated, motivated, all of that. But one of my, uh, one of my colleagues said it to me, and I think she said it pretty well. She said, Brad, I think it's your essence. She uses the word essence. She says, it's your essence to be in the presence of people as they're growing and discovering and healing. I think that kind of sums it up, especially with the demographic I work with. It's, it's just a group that tends to take the ball and run with it. So most coaches have a philosophy and how they approach their work. What is your philosophy for coaching? My philosophy, well, physicians and executives, you know, as I said, they tend to be very ambitious people, you know, highly trained, educated, motivated, all of that. So they've done a marvelous job at gaining intellectual knowledge. I mean, they're very smart, you know, extremely technically savvy, highly skilled and so on. But these high achievers, and I don't by any means mean all, but, you know, many, many of these high achievers, you know, they've, because they've thrown themselves at medical school or business school, or they, you know, they've been consumed with learning business uh, or learning science and so on. They've often neglected working on their adaptive capacities. And by adaptive capacities, I mean, developmental work and then developmental work has an emotional psychological aspect to it. And because of who they are, you know, because of, as what I described, I mean, they're smart, educated, ambitious, and so on. They're, they're like magnets for promotion. You know, they're destined to be promoted uh, to these positions of high authority and responsibility. And if, if they're, 
if they're not already there when I get my hands on them. So when you get promoted, and I said, I say you, I said we, we human beings, when we get promoted to these higher levels of authority, I mean, uh, you're required to be more than smart. Okay, you're required to walk with wisdom, which is different than smart, you know, gravitas, maturity. You have to walk with, walk, talk, and think, I guess, with, with at least a strong enough ego. So some of these high achievers hit their adaptive limit. It's kind of like hitting a ceiling, okay? And it depends on the individual. I mean, there's, you know, many different expressions of this, but uh, many hit insecurities. Um, some hit uh, relational inabilities some hit kind of a dearth of ability to lead you know others hit their their uh, limit of ability to think creatively you know and you know sometimes they will base their and i keep saying they i, sh I should keep saying we you know sometimes we you know so this is a human thing but sometimes we uh, base our decision making on our fears and limits and so on rather than on our passion so so that happens but in all in, in addition to all of that these people that I'm talking about tend to get isolated because there are misconceptions that go along with these higher positions and so on and so forth. But so to put it simply, to sum it up, <laughs> I'm being a little bit wordy here, but the work that I do is to fast track these high achievers to attend to the adaptive work. So, you know, I systematically trend them to higher levels of adult development and more complex thinking, or at least I, I provide the potential for that to happen. So that's what I do. You equip executives and physicians with tools needed to face their day-to-day -day complexities. I imagine that's another way of seeing attending to the adaptive work that you're discussing. Can you share about how you do that? I know you know this, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir here, but uh, supporting executives, you know, and, you know, being a professional listener and, you know, supporting uh, executives and physicians, it's extremely complex work. You know, every individual is different. So they come to you with this whole spectrum of presenting issues. So as I talk about my method, I'm going to oversimplify and just know that there's tons of caveats and exceptions. I just it take too much time to go into them. But that being said, the good news is the way to empower people and you know, the people in these higher level positions of authority and responsibility is to help them grow, basically, help them nurture their ability to think with more complexity. For example, there's this notion of imposter syndrome. You know, it's very popular now. It's all out there, and I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, and it's an extremely useful concept, you know, in which, you know, basically it's kind of defined as, loosely defined as someone gets into a position and they feel insecure, uh, they feel they're not good enough to be there, and they might be exposed in some way. That's basically a summary of what uh, imposter syndrome is. But when you think about it, the thinking or the thought constructs that go with imposter syndrome, you know, they're, they're obviously extremely counterproductive, but they're also very, very simplistic. You know, they're very base. They, they lack complexity. You know, we're talking about constructs like, you know, people might see that I'm not qualified. I don't fit in. You know, I'm either good enough or I'm not good enough and so on. Well, in my world, we call this type of thinking the instrumental self-sovereign mind, or sometimes we call it the socialized mind, depends on what level it's at. But, and this nomenclature comes from the work of Bob Keegan, once again, out of Harvard University. But these, these constructs, you know, the socialized mind and the instrumental self-sovereign mind, you know, they can be very black and white thinking, or they might be thinking in which you're, you know, you look outside of yourself to define who you are, or you look outside of, you know, outside of yourself to define your values, you know, your standards, you know, if you're, if you're accepted or belong and so on. So, but here's the rub. The majority of college educated, you know, if the statistics are correct, and I think they are, <laughs> the majority of college educated adults use these basic filters to make sense of the world. 
you know, like we see in imposter syndrome. And there, there are other thought constructs like imposter syndrome. That's not the only one. But guess what? Positions of high authority and responsibility, these leadership positions, you're required to think with more complexity than that. So it doesn't matter who you are. If you use these basic or simplistic thought constructs to lead, you're going to be in trouble. So, and I, once again, I'm going to kind of get to, get to your point here, get to your question, but the method that I use and my colleagues use, and um, just to plug the, the place where I learned this, is, a, is it's Keegan's company, Keegan and Lascaux Leahy and others, I think, but it's called Minds at Work, and they're out of Cambridge, and it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful organization, Minds at Work. The method I use that I learned from them, that I took from them, I guess, uh, starts with objectifying and identifying the filters that you're using to make sense of whatever is going on in your life in the present. Okay, so we definitely go after that. That's usually what's presented. But the bigger goal of developmental coaching, sometimes I call this the general goal or the global goal, is to trend high achievers toward more sophisticated ways of making sense of their world. And when you do that, then they can take that and bring it into multiple contexts. Uh, so they're more likely to be able to adapt regardless of the complexity they face. You mentioned that high achievers get isolated. Can you share more about this and why they get isolated? There's something out there called the authority paradox. And forgive me, Amy, I don't know who to cite on this. I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't come up with this. I think it's either out of uh, Michael Watkins' book, The First 90 Days, which is a classic, or there's another book, a book called The CEO Tightrope. So forgive me, whoever came up with the authority paradox, I don't, I, I'm not citing you and I should, and I apologize. But anyway, there's something called the authority paradox. And the authority paradox goes like this. The more authority you get, the less you can rely on authority to get your way. Okay, so in other words, the, the higher you climb on the ladder, the less you can just push your way through. Okay, so the reason for the authority paradox, I mean, there's a reason for it, why it exists, is because, well, you know, you got to these higher levels of authority and responsibility because you're smart and ambitious and so on. But guess what? You're going to be surrounded by people who are at least as smart and ambitious as you are. So you can't just smart your way through. You know, you can't just push your way through or dictate your way through or whatever. So you have to rely on the adaptive skills. You need stuff to be smart, but you have to rely on these adaptive skills. You know, as some people call them the soft skills, you know, negotiation, interpersonal skills, complex thinking, and complex thinking is different than smart. Okay, so once again, to address your question, so when, when they get into these positions of authority and responsibility, you often get isolated because, number one, you hit that ceiling of development. Uh, you know, that I talked about. And then you hit this authority paradox, which is troubling and confusing. But on top of all of that, you add to it that many people walk with the belief that being in these positions of authority, I mean, once they get there, means that they should know the answers. So many people who reach these positions, they simply don't realize that they can use developmental adaptive coaching to be more effective by breaking isolation, you know, essentially having neutral ears to bounce things off of, or they feel wrong or defective for needing help, or they feel wrong or effective for being afraid, or they feel wrong or effective for being overwhelmed, feeling overwhelmed. So you can imagine, I mean, as if being overwhelmed or feeling overwhelmed isn't bad enough, but then you put a, a lid on top of that of like, there's something wrong with me for being overwhelmed. Well, you know, that's kind of a trampoline. I call it a trampoline double bounce. <laughs> it's kind of a double whammy. So a lot of um, counterproductive decision-making comes from people getting isolated in their thinking, you know, and this causes a lot of suffering, you know, uh, it's most uh, in its most extreme manifestation. We see this in suicide, you know, I assume you're 
exposed to some of these statistics, but we're losing more than one physician a day to suicide in the United States. And the female docs are starting to catch up with the male docs in this regard. So basically what it boils down to, if you walk with a definition of resiliency that excludes the ability to ask for or receive help and support, or you define your role that way, then your own beliefs will isolate you. I love that. It's so true. It's so easy to think that you don't want to share your struggles because there are people out there that can misinterpret that as weakness or that you don't know what you're doing or you're not qualified or even tap into that sort of the terms of, you know, not feeling good enough or whatever it may be. And that goes into that whole idea of constructionism, you know, or constructivism, which is the person, there's the person's reality, but then there's the reality they construct. So it's the belief about that that's more than uh, more of a problem than the reality yeah yeah definitely a lot of developmental coaching can be very touchy feely and sometimes it can be a lot of like people think it's feel good stuff so how do you know developmental coaching helps people become better leaders and how does what you do manifest in the real world you know empirical support is basically what we're talking about here there's a really wonderful resource out there for leaders And it's called the Leadership Circle. It's an organization. And their CEO is a guy named Bill Adams. And their uh, chairman of the board is a guy named Bob Anderson. You know, great guy. But these two guys wrote a book called Mastering Leadership. And it's, it's just one of the best books out there. It's just a fantastic book. Anderson and Adams have not only wrote this wonderful book, but they've also amassed an incredible database of uh, leaders and organizations that they've worked with and studied. So, so I, I, and don't quote me on this. You know, I, I've not, probably got the numbers wrong, but they've got this really wild database. It's like 130,000 leaders or something. I can't, I can't remember the exact number, but anyway, it's this huge database, you know. But what they've managed to do is to quantify the if the elements of effective leadership and they call these elements leadership effectiveness correlations and these correlations they're fascinating in their own right i mean when you study them and and these people you know uh, anderson adams they're very generous with their data you know i mean you can tap into it you know if someone like me can tap into it so these things are fascinating in their own right but they clearly 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 point to the need for leaders to develop psychologically and, and emotionally so they can function at higher levels now on the other hand if you know uh, people in positions of authority or high complexity don't do developmental work and they need it, assuming they need it, we ca- sometimes we call this the cost of inaction. They risk making sense of the world with what's called a reactive operating system. And essentially what that means is that leaders, and I should include us in this, in a we, <laughs> will tend to lead from our insecurities, We'll lead from our wounds, you know, we'll lead from our fears, our limits and everything like that. So, and often when we do that, we don't even realize we're doing it. And this is happening all the time, you know, and which is job security for folks like me. It's, it's all over the place in every organization on the planet every day. This reactive fear-based thinking is the single, they call it the single big, biggest loss of resources that organizations suffer every day. So the cognitive and emotional energies of people are an organization's most valuable resource, but, but these resources are being squandered by organizations simply because they ignore the developmental work. They focus so much on the technical, which they have to, but, but this, this other you know, adaptive work kind of gets n- neglected. So people, basically what it boils down to is people are spending their cognitive and emotional energies, you know, protecting themselves, you know, buffering their insecurities, you know, hiding, avoiding, you know, getting into power struggles, you know, fear-based decision-making, and, and I could go on and on. But if you think about it, it's an absolutely staggering waste. You help people lead. And how is what you do as a coach different than therapy? 
Oh, that's a great question. And Amy, I, once again, I, I know you know this. I mean, you, we, you and I have talked uh, before we met here. Uh, but I am a licensed psychotherapist, and I still see a limited number of psychology clients, you know, so, you know, because I'm a therapist, I mean, I, I think a lot of people comment on that to me, or they ask me about that, isn't it, isn't it the same? And, you know, sure, it's the same in the sense that you're hiring a professional listener. I mean, that's very much the same. But I think I'm uniquely qualified to comment on the differences between therapy and developmental adaptive coaching, uh, because I've walked in both worlds, and I still do to some degree. There's all sorts of ways that developmental coaching is different than therapy. For example, uh, therapy assumes pathology. I mean, think about it. You're seeing a mental health professional, which implies mental illness. So, you know, therapy assumes pathology and it creates a paper trail related to that assumed pathology, which is why many of the docs I talk to, you know, they, they, and execs I talk to, you know, they hesitate to access this really important resource. And for that reason, but sometimes literally in order to engage a therapy client, especially if you're working with insurance, you're required to indicate that they suffer from some kind, you got to give them a diagnosis. I mean, some kind of diagnosis, otherwise they're not going to get reimbursed. And therapy typically does a deep dive into the past. Not all therapy does, but much, therapy, you know, it focuses on family of origin dynamics, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, coaching simply doesn't do those things, you know, and I could go on and on about other differences as well. But the biggest difference, the point I would like to make, and remember now, Amy, I'm speaking for myself, not, I'm not speaking on behalf of two industries, okay. But uh, the biggest difference between developmental coaching and therapy is that the type of development coaching I do is more, in my opinion, closely related to physics than it is to psychotherapy. I mean, think about uh, Keegan and Leahy's point that organizations are wasting the energies of the people, you know, and their cognitive and emotional energies are the resource. And as I said, healthcare organizations, this isn't rocket science, healthcare organizations, most valuable resource is the cognitive and emotional energies of their, their docs, their nurses, their execs, and their workers, and so on. So what I do is about refocusing or reclaiming the thinking and passion energies, you know, of healthcare workers, you know, physicians and executives and so on. Yeah, and we help them refocus that on the task, the mission, you know, the purpose and so on. So that's physics. That's not psychology. We're reclaiming wasted energies. So if you imagine, once again, if the statistics regarding levels of adult development are accurate, and once again, I think they are, the majority of us are spending our cognitive and emotional energies worrying about whether we're good enough, you know, or we're, or what people think, or, you know, if we're involving ourselves in power struggles or fear-based decision-making, and you could go on and on. So basically what it boils down to, this is a nightmare loss of resources for healthcare organizations and the healthcare, healthcare systems. You've shared how you help individuals. What are you seeing at an organizational level? I am working with a group of colleagues in an organization called Quanta. And Quanta is led, led by my friend and colleague, Peter Tran. Peter Tran is a, a very talented coach and organizational thinker. We, Quanta, we spent the better part of two years, I think about a year ago now or something like that, holding physician focus groups. And we conducted a bunch of healthcare uh, administrator interviews. Okay. So many of the physicians, I think we got a kind of a unique view on this. We actually have data on this. Okay. So many of the physicians who I, who spoke up in the physician groups anyway, um, they reported feeling, and these are kind of para, uh, paraphrases, I guess, but they, you know, we're being told how to practice medicine. You know, we feel we're being pulled down into the weeds too much with electronic medical records. You know, some use the expression, we feel like we're doing click box medicine. 
Some reported that they're, you know, being required to do more for less and so on. And, and once again, not all um, uh, docs feel this way. It's just many of them do. So what this boils down to is that many physicians report feeling that they're losing their sense of autonomy and purpose. Now, autonomy and purpose is something that if you read the literature on burnout, you'll see that out there. They, they talk a lot about mastery, autonomy, and purpose being taken from docs, you know, so on and so forth. You can imagine when someone goes into medical school, I mean, there's a kind of a, there's kind of an unconscious construct that when I go into this, when I come out the other side, I'm going to have autonomy, certain level of autonomy. I'm going to be treated as an expert. You know, I'm going to be esteemed, you know, all these things that, you know, used, used to be true and to some degree still are about being a physician. But the way the uh, healthcare systems are evolving, many of those things are being compromised. So as a result of that, and other factors, not just that, but many of the many, you know, more than half of the U.S. physicians report some symptoms of burnout. The literature says that. So, so anyway, my colleagues and I at Quanta, and I think unlike other researchers, uh, took the time to check in with the administrators too. We thought, well, hey, wait a minute, this is kind of you know, kind of half the equation. We got to talk to the administrators, and we found out that the administrators have concerns that are unique to their experience, okay? You know, many of them felt unfairly blamed. You know, several of them, you know, and once again, not all of them, but many of them felt blamed. You know, I, I heard the word demonized. We feel demonized, you know. Uh, physicians just don't understand the pressures that, re that require us to make some of the decisions we make. These things that we're doing that are suspect to physicians sometimes are, are we're doing it to help keep the boat afloat so they can do what they do and so on and so forth. So, I've come to think of the physician-administrator relationships more now like married couples. Okay, that's my analogy now, you know. Uh, they both need each other, you know, because they face this very complex healthcare environment together. You know, there's pressures coming from payers and the stampede toward consolidation and healthcare disruptors, you know, Amazon, CVS, and all like that. And now there's even, uh, you know, virtual healthcare delivery. So they, they walk in this very complex and, and dynamic wor a world together. So it's important for them, and once again, this is going to sound overly obvious, I guess, but it's important for them to realize that they have parallel goals and interests. You know, it's important for them to realize that they communicate and understand each other. It's important that they stop, you know, pejoritizing each other, stop, stop uh, taking each other for granted, stop making assumptions uh, about the motives and mentalities of the other, and so on. So, so it's a really tough time to be in healthcare. So physicians and healthcare executives need to support each other on an organizational level as much as they need support individually. They need support on an individual level. Earlier in the conversation, you said something about physician suicide. Could you say more about that? And I know you've spoken to groups about physician suicide as well. So it'd be great to hear your opinion on that and your insight. Yeah, I think when we talk about physician suicide, we're tempted to go into all the statistics and, you know, uh, and, and things like that. And I think uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think there's a lot of information out there around the statistics and things. So I think would probably be the most uh, helpful thing to talk about how organizations can kind of uh, approach the subject. I think that's probably the most fruitful things to talk about. Uh, so in the name of that, uh, there are, you know, basically three categories of intervention or organizational interaction when you're dealing with the subject of physician suicide, okay? And you can apply this to any high suicide correlation occupation, you know, soldiers, dentists, cops, and so on. So this isn't, this isn't just true of physicians, but think three categories, okay? And I'm going to, once again, way oversimplify this, but so be it. Uh, the first category involves organizational or leadership actions uh, that kind of get out in front of it. 
You know, they anticipate prevent suicide. Now, basically, we're talking about programs uh, and organizational efforts that are proactive. Okay, so the main ingredient, I kind of don't care how you do it, but the main ingredient of any pro, uh, proactive in- interaction has to be have one simple premise. And that premise is you have to break the evil twins. That's an expression from one of my mentors. You have to smash the evil twins. You have to crush the evil twins. You have to banish the evil twins. And the evil twins are silence and isolation. That's what gets people in trouble. So we have to start talking about suicide, not just talking about talking about it and not teaching about it. Okay, fine. Teach about it. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to, we have to we have to dissolve the taboo about broaching the subject, you know, make, you know, make it something you can talk about. Uh, once you de- once you do that, you're kind of off to the races. So when you get physicians, physician leaders and healthcare execs to start talking about how they feel. And once again, I don't care about the venue, you know, bereavement programs, groups, individual, in-house, contracted, whatever, get them to talk about what keeps them up at night, you know, make it business as usual, you know, to talk about when you're overwhelmed. I mean, and then I think you'll start to reduce suicides. You're not going to eliminate them. I mean, you know, physicians are human, but you'll reduce them. But in that first category, you know, the proactive category, there's another proactive action for organizations, you know, and I'm not seeing too much of this, I assume it's out there, would be for leadership, you know, organizations to basically inventory uh, the way that their processes and procedures dehumanize their docs, nurses, execs, and workers, and so on. So in other words, the organization would take a fearless moral inventory on the ways that it's trying too hard to extract value at the cost of compromising physician autonomy and purpose and, and, and then do something about it. So that's, so that's another proactive approach. But so the two components of the proactive approach to summarize that first category is to break silence and isolation. I mean, that's kind of the foundation. Uh, and then, and or uh, take a fearless moral inventory about the way your processes and procedures are creating moral hazard with your physicians. So that's the first category. And I hope I'm not rambling here, but this is okay. But the the second category, and I'll, um, I'll make this quick, but the um, second category of organizational interaction to, to reduce a physician suicide has to do with engaging the physician, physicians in real time. I call this getting into the trenches with them. And this goes back to offerings of coaching and therapy, you know, with, with the caveat, once again, that that uh, therapy, uh, many docs feel hesitant to enter it. But therapy is this fantastic resource. If you can, you can get docs to take advantage of that, it's, it's quite good. You know, groups, you know, but once again, you know, docs sometimes and execs sometimes feel hesitant to speak in front of other people about how they're feeling. You know, bereavement programs, groups, all that kind of stuff. Find out ways to stand shoulder to shoulder with your people on an ongoing basis. And this would have to do with get, snapping out of denial about that it's already bad. You know, you don't have to wait for something to happen. It's already bad. So make sure there's something going on in the trenches. Okay, so that's the second category. The third category of organizational interaction regarding suicide, uh, unfortunately, is the saddest one. Okay, this is one no one wants to have to deal with, but it happens. And that is post-suicide healing. And in my role as therapist, you know, I've, I've provided therapy services to family members of physicians who have suicided. And I can tell you that it's an extremely sad place to be. It's, you know, causes immense harm, requires a ton of healing. It's a very long road. But on an organizational level, this type of interaction involves providing space or creating space. And I'm not talking about filling space. I'm talking about providing space, providing space and time for people to heal. You know, providing space and time for people to break away, 
know, space and time for people to talk about their feelings, space and time for them to see their leaders expressing grief, empathy, and compassion. So have the leaders lead in that regard. So, so I've put it all together. Basically, you've got three categories. Proactive, get out in front of it. Make sure that you're doing something in the trenches and then be prepared to do some kind of post-suicide healing. What do you, is your truth that has gotten you this far in your journey? How would you feel about me playing with the verbiage on that a little bit? Can I shift that yeah. question around a little bit? Definitely. <laughs> I think instead of calling it my truth, I guess I'd call it, and I use this expression from time to time. I call it my the star on the horizon. I use that with my, my clients. You know, what's your star on the horizon? And so my star on the horizon is a goal that I'll never fully reach. I know that. So my, my, my star on the horizon is to reach, I guess, these higher levels of functioning, you know, being able to hold. And there's there different nomenclature for it. I mean, depending on which world you walk in, I'm using the coaching you know, levels of functioning, you know. Uh, but being able to hold multiple truths with, you know, at one time, to walk with multiple truths and not get too freaked out by it you know, to thrive, you know, not just tolerate, but thrive in, you know, circumstances of ambiguity, paradox, contradiction, and complexity, these types of things, to be able to go into these places and not let my fear stop me, you know. Uh, So I suppose heading toward that goal, you know, the, you know, higher functioning emotionally and psychologically is my goal. And I guess you could say that, you know, maybe I could use the word truth. That's my truth or that's my journey. Is that, a, is that a good answer? <laughs> yeah, I, I really appreciate that too, because I can so identify in some areas of my life where in some ways I have contradictory beliefs about the same types of things. I've lived that way for quite a while because, you know, I just, I, I can't necessarily find a black and white solution for those things. You know, they're, they're just not black and white things. It's uh, nice to actually hear somebody say that, uh, that you thrive for that. So, so if you were able to give yourself one piece of advice when you first started out, what would it be? I guess I'd remind myself that my, yeah, I think this is it. My close personal relationships are the most important thing. My wife, my kids, my, you know, my closest friends, friends, you know, things like that. And I think I would add to that. I, you know, I would still care about whether people think I wouldn't become antisocial, you know, but I would still care about what other, think, uh, other people think, but I, I would worry less about it. You know, I, I worry less about how I look. You know, worry less about what people think. You know, so I guess my advice would be to keep on striving, but don't forget uh, what's most important, and that isn't necessarily how you look. Okay, something like that. So, and I think I think to some degree I've managed to to some degree walk like that in my life. I've done a, a good enough job at doing that. I think. So Brad, if someone's listening and they want to get a hold of you to work with you or get more information about your coaching programs, what's the best way to contact you? Yeah, well, thanks for allowing me to plug Fern EPC. Uh, it's Fern, F, that's my last name, Fern, F-E-R-N-E-P-C.com. And you go there and you can get all my contact information. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your expertise and all the complexities that you deal with. I think that it's, it's really amazing uh, what the value that you bring to the coaching that you do and the fact that you have the background that you do and are able to coach, I think is just absolutely phenomenal. Well, thanks, Amy. And I, I appreciate you having me on today. It's been a real uh, pleasure. Yeah, definitely. And if you're listening, you want more information about our podcast and upcoming shows, you can visit a call to thrive.com. Thank you everyone and have a wonderful week.